Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Cersei podcast. We hope today's message encourages you and inspires you. Before we get into that message, we want to remind you about just a couple of things. First off, if you'd like to get connected to what God is doing here at the Cersei campus, text the word Cersei to 88000 for more information about what's going on here at our local campus, and you can give online there as well. You can also get connected to life groups and so much more just by texting Cersei to 88000. Now get your Bible apps ready and prepare to hear a great word today. Today I'm going to uh, just start with just kind of a standalone me- message. I, I honestly do not know if I'm going to turn this into a series or not. It depends on how many of you re- repent after this morning. Uh, I'll carry it on if not enough. Um, but I want to hop, hop into this and, uh, and just share my heart with you today. Uh, this was really one of those times I was telling Robbie over the weekend where um, I just kind of sat down to pin out, out this message, and within 45 minutes or so, I, I, was, I, I had it all out. I just, it was just in my heart uh, to share with us. And so um, I think this is, is a topic that uh, the church should visit once or twice every year um, and just remind us of the goodness of God and His plans over us. And so I'm going to try to take a different angle on an old topic today, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to hop in with this. As I've mentioned to you many times before, growing up for me, baseball was my sport. And we didn't really have soccer, and uh, my mom didn't want me playing football because uh, she was afraid I was going to die. And then uh, it was like tennis and golf were for wealthy people, and we, we weren't wealthy. So it was like, baseball's it. That's all that, that you, you have. So that's what I did. And when I was about 12, I had been playing, I don't know, two or three years at that point, and we got a, a coach. And this coach, for whatever reason, suddenly became very interested in the metrics of this sport. And that was new for us because we'd never heard a phrase, because we, we were 12, we'd never heard phrases like RBIs and, and uh, errors and, um, you know, all, all of the things that, that can go in uh, to that, batting averages. Um, and we weren't sure why the collection of these things were so important um, because we'd never been critiqued th- this way be- before. So at the end of the year, we had this... Uh, awards banquet, and we found out really quick why he had been collecting metrics, and so he brings out this box of trophies, but these were not, you know, your normal participation trophies. These were special trophies, and we were wondering, what's in the box? <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on with those special trophies? And so, he called up one player, and we knew this player was exceptional. He was better than any of us, and we knew that. And the coach brings him up, and he kind of tucks him under his arm, and he's talking about him and his, his accolades for the year. And he says, and because of all this, I am giving you this trophy. It is the most valuable player award. We're like, what? What is that? That's amazing. The most valuable player on our team. Man, we were clapping, excited, and we really didn't know the magnitude of what that meant, again, because we're 12. And he called up another player. And to this player, you know, he was like, this is the trophy for the most stolen bases in a season. We're like, that's amazing, too. This is fun. Let's do some more of this. 
And another player came up, and he was one of our, our pitchers, and he said, I'm giving you this trophy because you struck out 100 batters in this season. And he just kind of goes on, and we're all really impressed and, and clapping to each one, and we're looking at each other, and we're high-fiving, like, man, that's really good. I mean, you're the MVP of the season. You struck out 100 batters in the midst of all of that celebration. He calls my name. And I'm like, oh, this has got to be good. But the most valuable player is already gone. And uh, 100 pitchers is already gone. Stolen bases. What, what is this going to be? Where's he going with this, right? And he says, Kevin, I'm giving you this trophy because you were the most improved player. Now, I knew even at 12, this is, this is not the award I want. But he goes on, he says, listen, guys, Kevin started this year with a batting average of 200. I'm like, well, he could have skipped this part. But he ended up with 350. You know, I'm like, well, that's, that's like Ty Cobb. I mean, this is, this is really good. Yeah, I'm, now I'm winking at people. Like, that's right, 350. He says, Kevin started this year getting thrown out five out of ten Attempts to steal second base. Like, well, that's 50%. That's like an F in school. He says, buddy, end of the year with 20 successful stolen bases. And I'm, you know, I'm getting puffed up again. He says, Kevin started the year pitching at 45 miles an hour. And to me, I was like, well, that's like a school zone. He said, but he ended with 55. And I didn't know what to do with this. You know, I was humiliated, but at the same way, kind of honored. And I was so focused on like the first part, you know, like batting 200 and getting thrown out and all those other things that I really missed the second part. I missed the growing part and the hard work part or the intentional part of the great coaching part that I had. And I remember he kind of ended this with this kind of language. He said, listen, this is yours because this season, you did all the right things. And here's the point of this. I think every one of us in this room, we have a temptation many, many times to become overshadowed in life with where we're failing or falling behind to the point that you see the parts of you that you don't see the parts, rather, in you that are growing, that are transforming. That it's very easy with our self-talk to talk ourselves into a depression. It's easy to get a negative self-image just because we're, we're talking about all the areas, you know. I love this quote Craig Rochelle gave a few weeks ago. He said, if you want to kill something good, compare it to something else. And I think sometimes that's us. You know, we're, we're doing good. You know, we're, we're trying to do the right things, but then we just compare ourselves. We look around us, and we're all voyeurs in each other's lives, and we just continue. We have this constant temptation to say, well, if, if I were more like that, or if I had that, or if I could be like that, and suddenly we look at all the things that we're, you know, we're batting 200, we're getting thrown out, we're throwing as slow as a school zone, 
And we fail to realize that still through our intentionality and our drive and our purposeful living that we're taking steps toward betterment. That we truly are becoming more and more like Jesus because we, are, are, we have our trajectory set right. And so today I want to talk about this topic of improvement. I want to talk about the truth is that we're all on target to be the most improved player. And to hear the voice of that coach again, I want it to kind of come to this building that this is yours because you're doing all the right things. And in that, there is no shame. So I want to talk about righteousness. And I, by simple definition, you know, as Christians, we take this term righteousness and we look at it and sometimes it's scary. Sometimes right now, maybe even you're tempted to turn me off right now, like, oh gosh, he's going to start naming sins, and I'm going to be one of those, and then I'm going to feel guilty, and this is the morning I should have stayed home. He's going to talk about all the things that I should be doing that I'm not, and that's not the angle that I want to take. Righteousness simply defined as this, doing the right thing. I'm going to consistently do what's right because it's in me to, to, to do it. I've got the ability, and you've got the ability. It's part of our calling. It's part of who we are as believers, to do the right thing. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why. The majority of us in this place, if you grew up in church, and I'm not going to have, have you raise your hand, but I want you to go there for just a minute in your mind. I want you to think about a Sunday morning or a Sunday school class or a sermon, the culture of your church, um, the spiritual climate. I want you to think about any tensions that you may have felt as, as a kid growing up or a teen or a young adult. And for a lot of us in this room, righteousness was always attached to hell. Like, do the right thing or, we used a phrase growing up called, you better get right or you're going to get left. Okay. And that's speaking of the second coming. It was like, listen, if, if you don't have all your ducks in a row, then you're going to get left. And so most of us were taught that we needed to live right so that we would not go to hell. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not going to have, have you raise your hand, but I would guess a very high percentage of us in this place, that was where we were mentally and spiritually connected to the word righteousness. Like, I've, I've got to check the boxes, i got to do the things, i got to accomplish the stuff, i got to get these laws in me, i got to get these rules right, i got to make sure that everything's lined up, because if not, the outcome for me is not good in eternity. Now, in the church that I grew up in, we had an addendum, okay, because when we preached about hell, it was that this is where Hitler lived, and this is also where ACDC was going to do eternal concerts, okay? Some of you are like, yeah, rock on, you know. <laughs> it's true. I promise you, that's true. It's like, y'all listen, ACDC is going to be there. We're like, oh, not ACDC. Hurry it in so I can run to the altar. I want to go where ACDC is. Can I tell you all a funny story? I wish she was still in here, but Kim, we used to do this thing growing up. <laughs> we used to do this thing growing up. She's back there? Okay. And occasionally our church would have like a, a, a CD burning. 
Okay, did anybody else burn CDs? Don't be ashamed. Okay, it's okay. Yeah, three of you, that's okay. If you don't know what a CD burning is, you know, this was before you downloaded music or, you know, paid for Spotify. You actually went to a store and you bought music. And then your youth pastor would preach you under conviction, and we would have a burn barrel. And you would bring your devil's music and we'd throw it in, and demons would come out of the. No, I'm kidding. We'd throw it in there. Kim, one time, she had this Green Day album. Okay, I'm not going to mention the name because it's kind of crass. She threw it in there. The next year, she had the same album. The next year, same album. I'm telling you, she bought the thing five times. <laughs> oh, I wish she was in here. I always tell her, hey, did you ever go buy that, that album again? It was awesome. This is what we've attached righteousness to. Uh, things, uh, a, a checkbox. But let me take a different angle. What if there was a greater truth? What if, what if God is asking us as his followers, as his people, as his children, to do right so that we can have a better life? What if righteousness was less about eternity and more about right now? I mean, what if I reminded you that how we think and behave morally has outcomes, and those outcomes aren't there for the purpose of damnation or the gnashing of teeth, but they are there for the purpose of having a most improved life. Now, this is just me talking, I will call it Kevinology for just a minute, but if I, if I think this out, this is where I, I am. I believe with all of me that whatever was done on the cross was so big and great and grand and vast, I'm never in a hundred million lifetimes could not understand its fullness. It was, it was big and it was great and it was full of love and redemption and it was, it was so rescuing that I, I'm not trying to spend my life's energy checking boxes. Like, I'm, I, I, I kind of grew up that way, and so it, it's exhausting to me to go, i got to do everything perfect and right here so that somewhere, someplace in eternity, when this body ends, that I will be able to step into a bridge that I have built off of doing the right things. And this is where it becomes very prideful, because you and I aren't building anything to eternity. Jesus did it for us. So it was great, and it's big, and it's grand. So I really believe that doing the right thing is about how we can have a great life here from reaping the reward of doing right. And we can win people over to following Jesus because they see the pattern and the fruit in our lives of doing the right things. The book of Romans tells us early on that we have all sinned. Everybody say the word all. Come on, say, say, say the word all. All, yeah. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all dropped it. We've all messed it up. But before you self-condemn, there is a great theme that rolls and rolls and rolls through Scripture, and it's this. God has a way of bringing really good things out of really wrong turns. 
God has a way of teaching us through our failure and through our, our mistakes of His goodness, of His grace, of what He did on the cross for us. Once we accept this work and bring it into our lives through our own volition, we're choosing it. We're bringing in the righteousness of God into our own lives. But just because you failed, all of sin does not mean that you're going to fall into a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That God can use the simple process, and it's like we understand this physically, but we can't equate it spiritually. We're challenged with it. When you watch a child grow, that child may get close to a stove or a furnace or a fire, and they realize immediately it has pain with it. This, is, this isn't fun. I touch something hot, and now for the next three or four days, I'm going to feel the sting of that. You let them go against a parent or an authority figure, and there's consequences. They may get, get grounded or something taken away. When we grew up, you got a beating. You got something that reminded you that's not, not right. And we understand that and we get it and we use phrases like, listen, they're just growing up. Okay, give them some time. They're going to work it out. But it's like spiritually we're like, I just I failed. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of God. I'm not worthy of eternity. I'm not worthy to go to church anymore. I can't be around people that are holy and sacred. And I'm just, I'm just going to back out. I'm just going to trust that somewhere in my life the Lord sees me and knows how wretched I am and, and all of this and that. We, we, we can't get that the process is when you fail, God can take that wrong decision, that wrong turn, and turn it into something great. So... Today when we talk about righteousness, I just want to quickly give you three, three things to help you form a mental grid for this word righteousness, to do, to, do, to do right. The first one is this. These are all going to come in the form of questions. Am I doing what God has asked? Now this, again, sounds very superficial. It sounds shallow. But if you don't answer it truthfully, you sabotage it, Okay. So you got to ask yourself, am I doing what God has asked of me? I don't have time to get into all the, all the reasons why you feel you've heard from God. It could be a word. It could be counsel. It could be the Holy Spirit inside of you. A combination of all. But there's something in us where we know this is what I should be doing. As someone who wants to do right, as someone who wants to follow Christ, Am I doing what God has asked? Now, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus makes this statement. He says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? And I think it's just a simple question that he's, he's asking. Why, why do you call me Lord or why do you call me Master? You can put almost any title in there. Why do you call me Father? And not do what I tell you. This text goes on to give us an imagery of what it's like when we listen to, to what God is saying. He says, listen, if you'll do what I tell you, it's like a guy who builds his house on a rock. A storm comes and, and his house is stable and everything stays the same. But if you don't do what I tell you, it's like you built your house on sand. And like every, everything that you've built in your life and 
around you and the things that you thought were to, to, together and stable will fall apart just in one storm just because of what you're built upon. See, the level of God moving in your life will be determined by the level of obedience you give to what He says to you. So if I want God in my life, and I want His presence in my life, and His value in my life, and His favor on my life, that is equally in collaboration with my obedience to what He's saying. God made a lot of promises to His people that that were if-then. If you do this, then I will do this. Partner with me. Let's show each other that we love each other. I will, I, will, I will tell you this, and if, if you do it, then, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. But there is zero correlation, hear me, between knowing and doing. Knowing what to do and actually doing it are two completely unrelated disciplines. Acquiring knowledge is a great discipline, and some of you do that very well. You've gone to school, or you're a self-learner, or you're constantly perusing through things of, of, of interest and getting better at it. You are knowledgeable. But the application of that is a completely unrelated discipline. Okay? I mean, how many times in your life have you known what to do and chose not to do it? How many times have, have you known the right thing and then just being... Lazy, whether that was physically lazy, psychologically lazy, spiritually lazy, I'm not doing it. When you look at Scripture, there's a lot of people that we would refer to now in the modern church, postmodern church, as heroes of faith. But you look at their struggle, they, they were asked to, to do things and said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. You look at Abraham's father, Terah, when he got to Haran, he was like, this is where I'm staying, I'm not going any further. Look at Jonah. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not. You look at people who put the brakes on. I know, I've heard you, but I'm not going to do it because knowledge and doing are unrelated disciplines. The whole purpose of a doctor having a residency is to take what they've learned in med school and apply it in a real-life circumstance to build the bridge, to close the gap between this is what I know and this is what i got to do. And as followers of Jesus, we have to do the same thing. It's not enough for us to know Scripture. It's not enough for us to have a high church IQ. I know how to do church, participate in church, serve a church. I know when to stand. I know when to sit. I know when to clap. I know when to be quiet. I know how to do church is not not enough, the knowledge base, but to do what God has asked of us. James describes this as, as being a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. Second thing, what voice am I listening to? I'm not the only one in this room today with multiple voices in my head. Okay? Can I get an amen? <laughs> our, the voices we hear in our head always sound like, like us. God will even use your thoughts to communicate. It'll sound like your voice, your tone, your context. But there are many, many voices. 
that, that can in, influence us. So many voices capable of influencing. Your parents, your mentors, counselors, pastors, priests, the culture, your friends, bloggers, social influencers, educators, authors, coaches, political leaders, world leaders, organizational leaders, and so on. Anywhere you can plug in the word influence, which by the way is where we get our word influenza, to flow through the entire entity. Anytime someone has that power over you, they're an influencer, and they create a voice. And unfortunately, all these influencers are not on the same page. They're not from the same discipline. They don't have the same values. And so you're being influenced by all kinds of things around you, and you have to have the ability to go, but what is the greatest voice? What is going to be the one voice that I'm really tethered to that is superior to all other voices at all times? you got to choose one. And the good news is it's your choice to make. This is what makes it love. This is why there had to be two trees in the garden for them to pick from because God was like, I can't just force this on you. you got to choose me. It's the same way with us. We're going to choose the one voice, the one voice that spoke over creation, the one voice that can speak into dark places, the one voice that can calm fears and anxiety and make that the voice in our lives. Who are you listening to? It's very popular right now to be culturally sensitive. Everybody's wanting to be culturally sensitive to everybody and to embrace everything and everyone. I'm not trying to start a fight, but I will tell you this. Everyone and everything is not healthy for you. You can have a friend right now who's not healthy for you. Some of you can be dating someone right now considering marriage to them, and they're not healthy. And it's toxic, and it's abusive. And you need to get out. Some of you are listening to voices that need to be silenced in your life because they're not healthy for you. Don't feel like being a Christian means that your mind is a free-for-all. That you just have to love every single thing. That's not true. What we need to do is love the right thing and let everything else be silenced. Here's some physics that will help me draw up this point. A boat does not sink because of the water around it. A boat sinks because of the water that gets in it. The point is this. Don't let everything that's around you get inside you. You can navigate a tough culture and it not sink you. You can navigate a political and cultural landscape and it not sink you. We can navigate a pandemic together and it not sink you. You can navigate tough times and stress and and the temptation to fall into depression and anxiety. And you can navigate that thing without without letting it sink you. But when you open your life to it, 
and toxicity gets on the inside and suddenly you start harboring things and holding things. And, and the boat that you're in begins to be weighed down and sucked down. And suddenly, without blinking, you can realize that you're sitting on the bottom of an ocean. Don't let what's all around you get on the inside of you. Because there may be some things, okay? There may be some things that are legal. There may be some things that are permissible. There may be some things that are acceptable in our culture that are not wise, nor are they righteous. And you have to choose. I'm not doing that. I want to do the right thing. And this is not just, we're not new to this. If you read scripture, every culture had a vice. Every culture had an issue. Every culture had something they were trying to escape from, and we're no different. But there was always a people, a remnant, that said, I'm not going in your direction. Whether it was a spiritual leader saying, listen, I'm going to draw this line in the sand, and as for me and my house, we're going to serve God, but you got to choose. Or whether it was a prophet standing on a hill going, are you going to serve God or are you going to serve Baal? And, and so on and so on and so on. Through every generation and every era. John 10, 27 says, My sheep know my voice. I know them and they follow me. What voice are you listening to? Tuning out voices to focus on one voice requires intentionality. You have to dedicate time to honing in on the one voice that, that, that can champion you and bring you peace. All other voices need to be quiet. Stand firm against the voices in your life who drive you away from truth and lead you into a string of consequences you never wanted. Who are you listening to? Third, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Every one of us are leaving a legacy, an example. One day when I'm gone, I hope that's a long time, but I hope my child sits with her family and tells her children about my life, and it's in a good light. I hope she remembers all the good things and none of the bad things. I want my life to tell a story, and I want it to be a good one. And reflecting on the story that I started with, the metrics of our lives matter. And it's not so God can hold a mistake over your head, but because He gave His life for them. And He has purchased your mistakes with His life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, You have been bought at a high price. Now watch, watch the wording here. So glorify God with your body and your spirit. If righteousness was all about eternity, then what does it matter that I glorify God with my body? Because my body would be gone, decaying. Doing the right thing has a lot to do with this life right now. So relating to righteousness, let's visit one last principle 
and relearn it today, and that's this, okay? We reap what we sow. We find this principle across the board. If you plant corn, what do you reap? You reap corn. You never reap pineapples. At 9 o'clock this morning, somebody sent me a text right after the service and said, hey, pastor, last year I planted corn and I got cucumbers. And I said, how is that? And they said it was in the wrong packaging. I said, I don't think I can preach that. It doesn't apply. So whatever you put in the ground is what you're getting. (laughs) Right or wrong, it's coming back not only in fields of faith, but in fields of folly. And here's, here's a question for us. It's very rhetorical, but why would we ever expect to reap good after, return, after giving bad? If I treat others terribly, if I refuse to forgive, if I'm unkind, if my whole life, day after day after day, is about me and what I can get, and I'm never giving, I'm never, I'm never serving any other cause in my life, everything is about me, that will come back. That's the harvest. If you show up to your job late every day and disheveled and bad attitude and no passion for what you do, how can you expect a promotion or an increase? Why would we ever expect that? If all we do is eat Twinkies and donuts and Frappuccinos and other delicacies from eternity, we're not surprised when we walk to the mailbox and get lightheaded. I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> I, think that, I think that seventh Twinkie kind of did me in. This is a terrible example. But I mean, if you drink a six-pack of beer to celebrate Friday, and on Saturday you drink a six-pack of beer to celebrate Saturday, and on Sunday you drink a six-pack of beer after church to celebrate the goodness of God, you can't be surprised when you go, I'm 30 pounds overweight. This is punishment. No, it's a harvest. This is a harvest. We get what we are giving out. And this is this is is the point. Doing right right now. And this this is gonna sound like heresy unless you hear the context here, but I know. There are time on a, on a weekly basis that I know I've done something right or not, not because I had scripture or needed it, because of the Holy Spirit in me. I feel it. I get a check. I get nauseous. Sometimes I have to say, I gotta revisit this. I need to call them. I need to make this right. I need to send them a text and clarify. I need to have a conversation with somebody. This is for a different time, but last November, just before Thanksgiving, I went home and I told Robbie, I said, the Lord's been dealing with my heart over something that happened, y'all, 20 years ago. And I'll share it with you sometime. I don't have time today, but 
Sometimes that's how it happens. Just, just God is just cleaning house. He's just He's transforming you. He's causing you to throw from 45 to 55. He's causing you not to be able to steal second base. You're becoming the most improved. Because we're choosing to do the right thing. And whether you have scripture or verse or wise counsel or just the word of the Holy Spirit in you, man, be sensitive to it. It's a gift. It's a gift. That unseared conscience in you is a gift. Protect it. Hold on to it. Listen to it. And you may be here today and you say, oh boy, you know, I, I, I deserve a bad harvest. And maybe you're in the middle of that. Maybe you've been unkind to a lot of people and unkindness has found you. Maybe you've spent foolishly and now when you need something, you just don't have it. But there is one area in life where this rule does not apply. Because of the grace of God, we all reap a harvest from a seed we did not plant. We get to participate and glean forgiveness and joy and abundant life, not because we got out and rolled up our sleeves and put good seed in the soil. It's because of a work that was done that we do not deserve. So that this can be the story that we tell. We can say, I made some bad decisions. And those decisions resulted in some not so favorable outcomes. But because of God's grace, because I now choose to hear His voice and do what He says, I've had a most improved life.